Welcome back, or welcome to the Stride with Gravel podcast. I'm your host, Nate Reach. I created this podcast to interview individuals who, in my eyes, have the Great Wolf mentality. You may ask, what is that? Simply, it's individuals who don't allow their circumstances or disability to define them. They dust themselves off and say, matter of fact, I'm going to accomplish more than I ever thought possible, and no one is going to get in my way. In episode 8, my guest is Rob Shaw someone I admire and care about deeply. On the court, Rob is someone to be reckoned with. He was a 2019 pair of Pan Am champ and finished in the top 10 in the world. He is also very talented off the court. He is finishing up his PhD and painting masterpieces in his spare time. We talk about Paralympic sport, this thing called COVID you might have heard about, this wild journey we are on called life, most importantly, our bromance, plus much more. Without further ado, my conversation with the champ, Rob Shaw. Today we have the one and only Rob Shaw joining us on the podcast. Rob, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Uh, very happy to join you, Nate. Very happy. Good, man. How you doing? How's, uh, how's everything been going? Yeah, I mean, things have been going, I guess, uh, as smooth as one can hope during the I mean, the current times we live in, right? I'm sure things have been kind of hectic for you, kind of hectic for me too, right? I've got school going on and still trying to train, but train differently. I'm still not able to go to the gym. I think the gyms are open here now, but I'm just not comfortable myself going there yet. So doing everything from home is, um, you know, it's a blessing in one way that I get to be home and be in a comfortable environment, but I definitely miss going to the gym and seeing the, the you know, the locals there and the, the gym rats and the people who motivate me for sure, right? So Oh, absolutely. Have you been able to hit the courts at all? No, I mean, that's one thing that COVID's kind of been a bit of a blessing in disguise for me as I've been, I've been off court since almost the beginning of March with an elbow injury. And it's something that if there wasn't a COVID, I would have just played through it and probably pushed it and, you know, would have seen what the result was afterwards. But given that we had COVID, we took some time to really let it heal up a hundred percent and it's not quite a hundred percent yet, but it's getting closer, which means that, yeah, I haven't touched a, uh, you know, a tennis court in almost four or five months, which is the longest I think I've ever gone in probably my entire life since I was a kid. <laughs> wow. That is crazy. Uh, and so you could just kind of get the audience a frame of reference. I would love to kind of go back and just uh, let us know how it was growing up. And then when you joined into Paralympic sport. Yeah. I mean, growing up for me was, was a blast. I was a super active kid. I grew up in a small little town, North Bay in Ontario. And um, I mean, being an, an athletic kid who loved the outdoors, that was sort of a, a paradise for me. I was able to play all the sports I wanted to. Um, both my mom and dad worked really hard to give me that opportunity to be able to play sports. And their one rule, obviously, was that if we were going to do a sport, we had to really give it a proper go because they didn't want to spend the money on us just to go out there and you know, quit the first day in. So if you did something, you did it for the full year, um, which I think was a really good rule. And that obviously opened up my my eyes to a lot of opportunities and a lot of possibilities. And then, um, you know, I really sunk my teeth into tennis pretty early on when I was probably, you know, eight or nine years old and um, something my dad got me into. And uh, I fell in love with it almost right away. I think just the dynamic nature of the sport, the fact that there were so many different points kind of fed into my my ADD as a kid. I could never stay focused or concentrated for too long. And tennis points, you know, are at the longest, usually, you know, 30 seconds to a minute, and then you get to restart and have a whole new point. So um, it really fit my lifestyle. And um, I mean, that's how I got involved with the sport as a stand-up player. And then, um, you know, played for, for several years. And around 15 or 16, I started coaching and um, you know, by the time I was 20, 21, I've been coaching for four or five years playing obviously for 12 or 13. And, um, that's when I had my injury when I was 21. So I didn't really, you know, get into parasport as an athlete, obviously until after my injury, but I coached it for two or three years prior to my injury, which is a bit unique. I don't think a lot of people have that experience unless they know someone or someone's in their family has a disability to really get to experience a lot of parasport, but, um, in North Bay, you know, we have a pretty strong parasport community. So I coached wheelchair tennis for two or three years. And that obviously, you know, allowed me to realize pretty quickly on after my own injury that, Hey, you know what, there's going to be opportunities for me to probably continue this sport no longer as a coach really, but for sure as an athlete. So bit of a weird, uh, bit of a weird 
you know, transition into my current, uh, current lifestyle as an athlete for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's, that's super interesting. Cause you know, there's a lot of athletes who get hurt when they were young and like me, I got hurt when I was 10 and you know, they, they always told me I was lucky because I was, I was so young when I got hurt. How, how was it being in your twenties? You know, you kind of already had this sense of normalcy and then all of a sudden you had this injury and, you know, obviously uh, the, the, the road to recovery, I'm sure was really tough. Can you just kind of expand on that, on that a little bit? Yeah, I think you're right. I think you nailed on the head there, right? That I think whether you're injured or whether you're, you're young or you're older, there's always positives and negatives. And I was always of the mindset that, um, Hey, you know what? I'm 21. I had 21 good years of, of using my legs and using my hands and my upper body. And, um, I felt like I put them to, to pretty good use. And so, yeah, I was upset when I got injured, but, um, at the same time, very grateful that I had experienced a lot of things that I probably wouldn't be able to do right now. Right. I got injured, um, about two or three weeks after coming back from a, a year long trip over in Australia and the stuff I did over there, you know, I was climbing mountains, going through, going to waterfalls and things that I just probably wouldn't be able to do anymore. So I felt very grateful that I at least had, you know, some, some big opportunities that I had already checked off my list before I got injured. But at the same time, I mean, 21 is a pretty big transition age, right? You're in university and, um, just becoming a, you know, a more of an independent adult. And I had one more year left on my phys ed degree. And my, my life goal was really to become a phys ed teacher and a math teacher and move up to the territories and work up there for seven to 10 years and then make my way back down into Northern Ontario. And so getting injured threw a big curveball into my overall life plans. Cause I knew that while I could probably still be a phys ed teacher, that there's no way I'd be able to teach the same way that I was currently teaching. Um, and it wasn't something I was really willing to change. I didn't really want to change the type of teacher I was. Uh, I was a very kinesthetic teacher. I like to be hands-on, like to demonstrate um, and I wouldn't be able to do those things anymore. And so I kind of had to sit back and figure out, okay, what can I do now? Right. I either, you know, give up this degree or I finish it and, uh, then, you know, try to find something that'll work with it. And luckily I had some really great, really great teachers that were, uh, mentors to me then still are now that guided me and encouraged me to continue on with school and, you know, showed me that there's, uh, more schooling that can always be done, right? So after the undergrad, you know, maybe you want to do a master's or, or some other postgraduate work. And, um, you know, they convinced me to look into that. And obviously that's where I am now. So, um, you know, I'm happy for them to have been there when I needed them. But I mean, the, the transition wasn't easy like it is for anyone else. I mean, it was, um, I think I kept a pretty positive mindset throughout the whole thing. I had very, very strong family support and social support, which, um, I know a lot of people don't have after injury, so I felt super grateful to have my whole family there with me and friends still behind me and, um, you know, really felt like I was recovering for them just as much as I was for me. So they gave me a lot of motivation and like anyone has, you know, I mean, lots of challenges, lots of bad days, but um, I would say predominantly good days. I kind of viewed the injury as more of a challenge than anything else. Just one more, one more obstacle to overcome on this uh, crazy journey we call life, right? So no, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's so cool how, you know, our paths kind of led us to each other, getting to know each other uh, through the CPC. And, you know, I, I think I didn't really know anything about wheelchair tennis until I met you. And then I really learned there's not that many differences in like the tactical sense and the, and the rules sense. So from my understanding, the ball can bounce twice, but pretty much all the rules are pretty similar, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, really briefly, I still remember the first time we met, we were in that, that we shared a hotel room at the CPC summit. And, uh, I thought I had a room all to myself. So I remember getting there before you and I remember dumping all my luggage all over the place and then leaving and then coming back to the room like an hour later and all my stuff had been moved to my side of the room and on my bed. And I saw your stuff in the room and I was like, Oh man, what a bad impression I just made. I dumped myself all over this guy's bed and like, <laughs> Oh, geez. But, uh, but no, you're right. I mean, tennis is, is just the two balances. That's it. And that's kind of what I love about it is that it's so similar to the stand-up game that, um, while I enjoy being an athlete, I mean, I just enjoy going out and hitting with buddies and hitting with my family. Right. So the fact that it's a sport that I can just hop right into a chair and same court size, same racket, same technology, same equipment, and just two bounces with the ball. I mean, it's uh, it's a really accessible and modifiable sport, which is awesome. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, for, and please set me straight if I'm wrong. But from my understanding, you guys have a pretty good tour. You guys get to travel around the world. It's a pretty good lifestyle from um, what I've heard. Is that is that correct? Yeah, we're fortunate, right? I mean, not a lot of para sports are paid sports. And tennis is one of the, if not the only, professional para sport in the sense that we have a professional tour. Uh, we have paid events just like they have on the able body tour for the men's and women's. And so if you want to, I mean, you can be traveling upwards of 25 to 28 tournaments a year um, all over the world, right? I mean, last year alone, I think I went to 12 or 13 different countries. I played in 17 tournaments. Um, and obviously, if you play well, then, yeah, I mean, there's money on the line. So you can, um, if you play well enough and you get yourself up there, you can definitely make this into a full-time career. Um, now, the money isn't, isn't comparable to Able Body, but that's, that's sort of um, understandable. I think as the sport grows and as the popularity grows, you know, so will the prize pool for the para-sport um, for tennis. But, yeah, we're super fortunate that way. I, I had no idea pre-injury that there was a professional um, wheelchair tennis tour. I knew that people played wheelchair tennis. Obviously, I taught it, but I had no idea there was this organized, structured tour. And obviously, the um, athletes before me really set that in place and really lobbied hard to get them um, the professional tour and now people like me get to benefit from it which is pretty awesome yeah i know it's 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 super cool it's been a really cool journey for me because i've gotten to learn more about wheelchair tennis i went to wimbledon to just go and take a tour and my whole um you know impression and why i wanted to go was because of you because i was like oh i have to go see this you know hopefully i'll get to learn learn some more and it was really cool seeing you know those pictures up on the wall of a bunch of wheelchair tennis athletes it was uh it was really cool to see yeah i think it's one of the i would say you know compared to all the other para sports that i I, am familiar with and know people obviously with you in athletics and tara Giannis in basketball and uh, a couple of the wheelchair rugby guys i think tennis is you know one of those uh, para sports that the able-bodied counter tour has really done a great job of welcoming us, right? And adopting us as their own. And there's a lot of supporters on the WTA and ATP tour that give us shout outs, that give us publicity, that allow us to come and do exhibitions with them and really grow the sport that way. And you sort of need that obviously, right? I mean, it takes, it takes no time for a, an able-bodied um, tour to really set up an opportunity for a, a para-sport tour to come on and get some, some awareness. Um, you know, they already have the media in place. They already have all the industry in place and um, things we don't have yet. And so for them to be able to invite some of our players to do exhibitions with them, like you said, have our photos up on the wall, the same place theirs are after championship wins is massive, right? It shows support. It shows that um, we are, you know, on the same level playing field, which is pretty cool. No, yeah, it is. It- it is really cool. And 2019, uh, from an outsider's perspective, was a pretty dang dang good year. But as I know, you know, uh, it's not always smooth sailing. And what really set you up for success going into that 2019 season? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, um, you know, it's hard to debate who had the bigger year between me and you because we both had some pretty, some pretty big milestones reached that we had talked about uh, the year prior. So, Pretty cool that a lot of them came to fruition, but, um, you know, I think, you know, I, I didn't start off the year that great, to be honest. I had a, a pretty good showing, I think, in the UK where I I won one tournament and I went to the semis of another, but I really wasn't playing that good of tennis and um, felt like I was just, just scraping by, you know, and the matches I was winning, I was barely winning and everything was slowly starting to unravel. I'm not sure if you ever feel that in a race maybe where you're like coming down, maybe the stretch in the last, you know, one, 200 meters and you can just feel your body starting to unravel, but there's not a whole lot you can do about it. Um, I'm sure you've experienced that. And I kind of felt the same way in my matches where like, you know, things were still, you know, my arms were still moving, the ball was still going in, but all of a sudden, you know, more balls were going out and um, fast forward to March, I was feeling really bad about my tournament play. Um, in my match play in general and it was at that time that we had a um, a friend out here who actually passed away and that sort of I think allowed me to to reset and kind of reshift my focus a bit he was a um, a really good uh, wheelchair rugby player in Canada and um, I just got to know him a little bit through another friend out here and um, you know when when he passed away it sort of put things into perspective just as far as 
you know, why am I playing sport? Why am I doing this? This guy played wheelchair rugby for 20 plus years, went to multiple Paralympics, won medals. And, um, you know, what am I doing this for exactly? So I actually took like a, a full month off, almost a month and a half off and, um, got a lot of work with my mental trainer to try to re refocus, reshift my energy. And, um, coming back from that hiatus is when I went on this pretty big, pretty big tear to end the, end the year that my last six months were easily the best tennis I've ever played, but more importantly, just the most free I've probably ever felt on court where, um, didn't matter what I was doing out there, whether it was a win or a loss or playing good or playing bad. I just felt good for the first time on tour as a player. I just felt like what I was doing was for the right reasons. And, um, I started finally starting to enjoy, um, competing a bit more, which I had never done before. My first few years on tour, I hated competing. I hated the traveling. I hated match play, loved practicing, very good practice player, but just couldn't translate it into a match mainly because I just didn't care. Um, and then I had, you know, to reflect and I found some different meaning to be on the court. And that definitely, I think allowed me to untap some of that practice potential for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you and I vaguely talked about working with our sports psych. Um, and it's, it's crazy how much of a difference that can make. And, you know, I always thought like, oh, like I thrive on negative, but really, uh, I don't, <laughs> I prefer, you know, and I, I think that I just beat myself against the wall for so, for so long. Did you have a similar um, realization when you started working with your sports psych or how was that? Yeah, I work with a, uh, a gentleman by the name of Dave Freeze and uh, he told me about our very first meeting, he's like, there's only about three to 5% of people that thrive off the negative and the majority of us thrive off the positive. He's like, so you might be one of those guys who thrives off the negative, but let's give the positive a chance to see what happens, right? And so we, uh, we quickly realized that, you know, while I, um, I do really enjoy extremely critical and honest feedback from a coach, I don't like a coach who sugarcoats anything. If I miss a ball, I want him to him or her to tell me, you know, that's unacceptable. That's a bad miss. You can't miss that. But when I'm on the court by myself, it's important to have that positive self-talk to myself, right? To acknowledge that, yeah, maybe I miss an easy shot. Um, and I can get frustrated, but then I need to really instantly correct it with a positive to neutralize the emotion and then move on to the next point. And in tennis, we have a really unique sport where it's not continuous, right? I get, I get after every point, I get 15 to 20 seconds to either mentally regroup or mentally break down. And I get that opportunity after every single point. And so the mental side of tennis is so important and something that I completely neglected, um, not only during my parasport career, but my entire career as an athlete. And so working with Dave has definitely helped me to understand that, you know what, clearly I do enjoy the negative in a practice setting, but um, if I'm too negative in a match, I mean, it builds up, it builds up, and then I can't get out of the hole. And, you know, just by doing a couple more positive things to myself, in between points, I can neutralize everything and just probably continue to just feel good, feel neutral. And that's, I mean, it's been massive. Yeah. I've been with him now for probably three years and uh, it's not surprising to see how much better I am now because of him for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And like you mentioned, there was definitely some bumps in that road in that 2019 season. And then all of a sudden you're getting ready for Pan Ams. How was that prep leading into Pan Ams and how did it feel to, you know, win your first Pan Am title? Yeah, I remember, um, like I mentioned, you know, earlier in the year playing so badly and calling Dave uh, after a tournament and just saying, Dave, like, I can't hit a backhand, man. The backhand's gone. I'm, I'm, I'm a garbage player. Like, you know, it's embarrassing out there. I feel embarrassed to be on the court, you know? And he was like, just remember that, you know, your skills don't abandon you. You clearly abandoned your skills, right? And it's a bit of a weird term that he uses, but um, it really clicked with me that, yeah, you know what? I've been putting in years and years, you know, at that point, seven or eight years of tennis training in a wheelchair, like my backhand just didn't disappear. I mean, it's obviously there. Something I did on court during those matches led me to either lose confidence or lose my timing or something with that stroke, but the stroke is still there. I just need to reset, re refocus and, and find it again. And so after that month and a half break um, going into um, you know, going into Lima, um, 
I had just gotten back from a tournament in Austria that I had to withdraw with an elbow injury. Um, and I made it to the finals over there and making it to the finals over there had actually got me the second seed in Lima. So that was a huge tournament because I knew that I, I really needed that second seed to get a, a more favorable draw, obviously. And so going into Lima, I mean, I was pretty banged up about a week before. Didn't really know if I was going to be going or not. Um, hadn't played tennis for two weeks to try to give us some rest to heal. And, you know, sort of against the doctor's orders um, of rest, we went and played anyways. Um, obviously, the result was was great. Um, but more importantly, I think, was just the quality of tennis. I, I played extremely well there. Um, match in and match out one after another. I think in tennis, it's easy to have a really good match and then not follow it up with another good one. Um, but I followed all three of mine really, really well, got better and better and better. Obviously had a really good finals and that definitely, that was the catalyst. I mean, after that tournament, I went on to, I think win five more to finish the year off, um, and went on a run that just, I've never had in my career. Um, and again, a lot of it's attributed to the Dave working with me and getting me in a good mindset to just go and injured or not, just go and try to play good tennis. That's all we try to do now is, um, I've never been, I'm kind of like you, Nate, I've never been super results driven, right? I'm not someone who's seeking to, um, shatter records or rack up as many titles as I can. I just really want to go and play the best tennis I can. Just like, I know you just want to go and run the best race you can. If it results in a win, that's that's fantastic. But if it doesn't, I'm still not going to be that upset as long as I played really good tennis. Um, and that that mind shift, mind shift there, I think, just opened up a lot of um, just a lot of potential that was sort of being uh, suffocated. I would say. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I know you kind of mentioned there um, that obviously you're not results driven um, and as you mentioned as well as you know you kind of had to take a look inside after your buddy passed away and um what are your goals for that 2021 season and do you have a new why or has it evolved kind of over this past year yeah i mean we have we we set goals for sure and i think as part of um, any athletic program you're setting yearly goals and yearly milestones to achieve and Obviously, I'm, I'm still ranked in the top 10. So number one priority is maintaining that ranking and hopefully advancing on in a few spots. Um, but mainly for this year, we're trying to focus on a lot of technical goals, um, really try to improve some of the strokes that I have, trying to learn some new ones, um, make my execution a little more consistent because we feel, um, and by we, I mean myself, my coaching staff, my sports psych, um, and my supporters at Tennis Canada, that I'm playing, I'm playing pretty good tennis. And when I play my best, obviously I can have really good results that um, you know keep me in the top ten and make me competitive against any any player in there. Um, but it's the consistency, and by I think improving my technique on certain strokes, obviously I'd be able to hopefully improve that consistency and just be able to have a greater turnover of good result after good result. I've sort of been known to, um, you know, have one bad match or one bad set in the tournament. And in tennis, I mean, it's one and done. You're out. Um, kind of like racing, right? I mean, you can't, you can't rerun the race the next day. I mean, when it's time to race, you better go and race. So, uh, I need to get, need to get better at that. And that's not, that's not a matter of, um, you know, saying, uh, I want to get better at match play is just way too vague of a goal at this point. It needs to be more broken down into, okay, well, what's going to make me better in that match? And for us, we think it's just working on a couple of technique changes to modify the way I play the game. And then um, by modifying the way I play the game, hopefully make me a little more consistent as we go forward. Sports is such a, a cyclical, you know, thing, you know, it's so up and down and obviously you work with a sport, a sports like, is there any tactical um, processes that you use um, to kind of help you bring, bring you back to center? Uh, during during tough times yeah i mean it, totally i do i mean tennis is a a grueling sport in the sense of if you want to be top 10 top five in the world you got to play tournaments and by playing tournaments you're you know traveling around all the time and um, playing 17 to 20 tournaments a year is not only grueling on the body but it's grueling mentally as well right you're away from home you're away from family away from friends living in a hotel and i think on paper it sounds really glamorous right i mean last year i had a 
a stint where I was in the UK, then I competed in Belgium, then I went to Austria, then I went to Lima, all in a four or five week segment. And it sounds amazing, but um, you know, in reality, I'm seeing the the airports, I'm seeing the hotels, I'm seeing the tennis courts. I'm not getting a whole lot of time to travel around and see you know Machu Picchu and and go see uh, you know downtown London. Um, so you have to have tactics, I think, to um, mentally reset whether you're performing well or not. Even when I'm playing uh, a good tournament and I finish well, I still need to have some mental strategies to just kind of reset and refresh myself. And a lot of that, I think for me is um, just getting completely away from the sport. And so fortunately, I mean, some people see it as unfortunate, but I see it as fortunately, I'm still in school. And so school gives me like an an immediate outlet to just completely forget about tennis and just focus all my effort and energy into something else. Um, And so I've, I've really enjoyed having those two identities where after a tournament, if I have, you know, four or five day break in between, there's still practice, but in my spare time, not constantly just think about tennis. I, instead, I completely forget about tennis and focus on my schoolwork. And that just sort of allows me to, I think, almost subconsciously recharge my tennis battery because I'm not someone who, um, you know, I, I don't think I'll ever be an athlete who just plays tennis and does nothing else. I don't think I have enough passion just to dedicate all my energy and all my thinking towards one thing. I like to do too many different, too many different things, too many different hobbies. And so I think having those outlets afterwards to completely forget about the sport and, and focus your energy somewhere else allows you to recharge your batteries. Um, so that when you get time to play tennis again, it's, it feels like it's, you know, something new again, something fun again, not something you've been dreading or, or thinking about forever. So, yeah, no, absolutely. And I have to ask you about your paintings. Um, my girlfriend was here this past weekend and I was showing her a bunch of your paintings and just tell her how awesome they looked. Uh, how long have you been doing that? Is that more of a recent thing or is that something you've always had a passion for? Yeah. I mean, painting, the painting is, um, falls into that, that area of, uh, of like a mental tactic for me. It's an outlet for sure. Um, not something I was ever good at growing up. I was pretty bad at art. I would say, and not that you can be bad or good at art. It's just, um, I never really enjoyed it because I didn't come overly naturally to me. I'm a fairly impatient person, um, especially as a kid growing up. And so the fact that I couldn't draw, the fact that I couldn't paint or do anything really artistic um, led me to towards music. And so as a kid, I, I played music growing up and I played um, mainly guitar. And so after my injury, um, my hand function wasn't good enough to play guitar anymore. And so for the last sort of eight or nine years post-injury, I've been trying to find different ways to fill that creative void that was lost when I, when I lost my ability to play guitar. And, you know, I tried playing other instruments briefly, um, but nothing really gave me the satisfaction um, the same way that playing the guitar did. I always sort of, you know, could always thought back to how much fun it was and how much I enjoyed it and um, was kind of sad constantly not being able to play it. And so, just the last two years, I decided, ah, you know what? Like painting was something my brothers always did growing up. And I used to love watching them do abstract painting. And I figured with my hand skills and my hand tremors the way they are, I probably wouldn't be able to do any like super fine detailed work, but um, there's no reason why I couldn't do abstract work. And so I started just watching a bunch of tutorials on YouTube and on the internet. Like we all, we all do now when we want to learn something and um been working on it ever since and now i'm at a stage where i think i've got um enough enough understanding to yeah you know share what i do with my instagram community and let them see um sort of behind the scenes of of what i do in my spare time the things that make me happy and um obviously with me not being able to be on court right now i don't have a whole lot of content for people not that i was a big instagrammer to begin with as you know but um it's kind of fun to do and just another thing that I can, um, you know, add to my list of, of things that make me happy that also allow me to recharge away from the tennis court. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, part of the reason why I started this podcast is because I just wanted to find uh, different perspectives on the Paralympic movement and how we can further uh, this movement. Do you have a couple of things that you would like to see either improve or kind of be new uh, into the par- the Paralympic movement, and also what what's one or two things that you see that we're doing really well? 
Yeah, I mean that's a that's a that's a tough question. Nate's coming out with the with the hard questions midway through this. So hey, uh, um, I mean I think we're doing a lot of good things uh, and a lot of good things really well, right? I think the publicity around Parasport is obviously growing. I mean if you look at the ticket sales down in Rio for the 2016 games, I mean events were sold out. Um, so obviously we're doing a really good job of getting Parasport into homes. Um, in front of people's eyes to let them see what what people are capable of doing. And I think the main thing is showing them how high level the the sport is, right? I think when people often thought of parasport, um, you think of, of lesser than, unfortunately, right? I mean, um, and that's not the case, right? These, these athletes are extremely talented. They're doing stuff that, um, you know, the average person can't do because the average person hasn't dedicated 10, 15, 20 years of their life to pursuing an athletic endeavor. Um, and that gets lost, I think, on people, but now we're doing a great job of, of not allowing that to be the narrative, right? Shifting the focus towards um, just these individuals as athletes and not as para-athletes, as far as their talent and their skill and their execution goes. Um, one thing that I think all sports could do a better job at is doing a little more integration Right. I think I mentioned it earlier on uh, that I think tennis is a pretty good job of of hosting events at the same time as able-bodied events. Right. So whenever, whenever there is a major going on, the wheelchair major happens at the same time. And so people, whether they know about it or not, are going to be exposed to wheelchair tennis when they go and watch Wimbledon, when they go to the French Open, when they go to the U.S. Open, when they go to the Australian Open. They're going to see both stand-up and wheelchair tennis. And I think more sports could try to integrate that model a bit more, right. Rather than having separate, you know, um, I'm not sure how it works in the athletic, in the athletic world, you can fill me in Nate, but you know, for example, for diamond league races for able body, you know, that would be a great opportunity. I would imagine to have the, the para athletics happening at the same time, right. That way you have exposure to, to people in, um, you know, the, the fans are already going to be there for the able body sport. They might as well be there and stay there for the para sport as well and open their eyes to it that way. And I think, across parasport we can do a better job of just integrating the the able-bodied sport with the parasport as far as the exposure opportunity but maybe that is happening in athletics i'm not really sure yeah no so like on a national level like at nationals it's definitely happening uh but in the diamond leagues it definitely isn't happening we're, we're definitely trying to get uh a couple events within the diamond league you know i i think education and um, really, yeah, just getting more eyeballs on Paralympic sport. It doesn't matter if it's paraphletics or uh, or we try tennis. And so, yeah, no, I, I think we're slowly getting there. But, um, you know, it's great to see at nationals, like after Andre DeGrasse runs, a lot of times it'll be followed up by um, the para 100 meter, uh, which is really cool. You know, some of the biggest stars in the able body um we get to see running them. We have a one really good up and coming uh, blind sprinter who is uh, fourth in the world right now. So, um, you know, I think we're doing a okay job. Definitely not as good as tennis, but uh, no, I think we're slowly getting there. Yeah. And I mean, that's the, that's the type of stuff that I would love to see happen on a regular basis, right? Like you have all these, all these people, all these crowds already there. And more importantly, like, as we know, um, the able-bodied sport has way more money than the para-sport does and way more access to resources, way more access to sponsorship. And so the, the cost associated with putting on a large-scale event for a para-sport is extremely high, whereas, um, you know, the, the amount of money to integrate a para-sport into an already existing infrastructure for able-bodied sport is much less. And so you're kind of getting, you know, double bang for your buck there, as far as I'm concerned, where you're not, you're not inhibiting on the quality of the able-bodied sport. You're not interfering with their exposure. Um, at the same time, you'd be able to cut down their costs by having us contribute to the cost of the event and then also get us exposure from, from you know, other fans in the stadium or from TV um, rights or streaming and um, just get more people's eyeballs on the para-sport movement. And so... I'm happy that it's happening at least at a national level for for athletics, but I mean international, like you said, is obviously the uh, the next step. Yeah, no, obviously, and I don't know if this is how how you feel, but I feel that you know able-bodied athletes learn so much for us, and we learn so much from 
from them too. And I think that's such a big thing and why I love integration like with, with training camps because yes, like we may, we may move different, but you can still learn something from each other. And I think that's super powerful. Yeah, I totally agree, man. I think the grind is the grind is the same, whether you're a para sport or, or you're uh, you know, Olympic sport, it's, it's, uh, it's no different. These people, like I said earlier, I mean, these people, whether you're running the hundred meter dash as Andre de Grasse, or you're doing the uh, 1500 as, as Nate Gray Wolf, you know, it's, uh, I mean, you're all putting in, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of your life into, into a sport. You're training every day. You're doing the mental work. You're doing the technical work. You're doing the strength training work. And, um, yeah, it's, it's no different, like you said. And so obviously we can learn from each other because we're all going through a very similar process and the, the ups and downs that a, uh, an athlete experiences isn't going to change between an able body and a parasport athlete. If anything, I mean, there might be more extremes on either end, right? Who knows? And so, yeah, no, no, no question. We can learn from each other. I think tennis is doing a really good job of that at the highest levels, right? These top sort of, you know, three or four players in the world for wheelchair, get to meet the able body players and converse with them and talk and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, sort of us scrubs there down at, you know, number eight, nine and 10 in the world, um, maybe don't have as much access, but at least it's moving in the right direction because certainly we can all learn from each other. No question about it. Awesome. And you know, I can't let you jump on the podcast and not ask if you think Tokyo 2021 is going to happen. What are your thoughts? Obviously things change from day to day, month to month, but uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a, I think I'm a pretty optimistic guy in general, Uh, but I'm also pretty real. I mean, I think, I think without a vaccine, it's going to be really challenging to host. Um, just from a safety perspective for their own country. I think if you exclude the the idea of the safety for the athletes traveling there, I think just as a host nation, if we don't have it under control from a vaccine perspective at that point, it would be really difficult, I think, for um, the Japanese organizing committee to allow that many foreign individuals into their country, potentially um, you know, increasing their risk for their own people. Um, and they are really passionate people and they do put their own health first as they should. And so that's where I see the problem coming in. I don't think it's with the traveling of the athletes and what kind of fans are going to be there. I think it's more so, you know, is this safe for the host country? And at this point, certainly not. I mean, there's no way you'd have thousands of athletes travel over to any country, um, the way that the world is right now with COVID with rates still increasing in many countries, but, um, you know, we're, we're still a year out and a vaccine is, still being worked on in several countries and with a vaccine, then it's a whole different story, right? I mean, then it's, it becomes very easy to, uh, to travel and to feel safe. But I think without that vaccine, um, the way the virus is continuing to spread, I, I, I'm definitely holding my, holding my excitement. That's for sure. I know people are excited. We're a year, year away and I don't want to put any, any downers for anyone out there, but um, it's challenging, you know, and I think a lot of athletes have spoken up and said, you know, um, Sport isn't everything, obviously, right? I mean, it's it's very small and very low on the priority list when you start thinking about uh, your own health and the health of your family and your friends and the health of other people. So that's got to be priority number one. But I'm holding a sliver of hope that it that, that it does run because um, I think, like you, right? I mean, I've never been to a Paralympics game, so that would be that would be fantastic. I was really looking forward to doing it, and something obviously I've been training for. And uh, if it happens, I'll be over the moon excited. And if it doesn't happen, then uh, you know, 2024, here we come. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Now there's been rumors going around that, you know, bubble could be happening uh, for us in Tokyo. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, and is that something that you'd be interested in? Yeah, I mean, bubble is, I think, the only way you, you would be able to do it right now without a vaccine. And a bubble is something that, um, I mean, I have no problem with it. I'm a pretty... I'm a pretty easy to please introverted person. So the idea of staying in a bubble for, uh, you know, two, three weeks, four weeks at a time doesn't really phase me at all. Right. I mean, for, for my first almost two months of COVID, I, I barely left my apartment. I, think I left my apartment once or twice. Um, that was it, you know, I had my groceries delivered and, and that was all I needed. So obviously the Tokyo conditions wouldn't be the same as living at home. Um, but yeah, I mean, as long as they made it healthy, they made it safe, and I felt comfortable going over there. I don't think a bubble would really 
really impact my overall mental health just because it's, it's I, I know it would be a shorter amount of time right if you're talking about two three months in a bubble that's very different but with the paralympics only being a two two and a half week event um with a, with a two-week quarantine before maximum we're talking about is about a month uh and that seems pretty manageable to me yeah no awesome awesome now little break from the hard hitting questions <laughs> to some rapid fire. Uh, hopefully we, we can get some laughs out of, uh, out of these, but, um, first, obviously we know you travel a lot. Is, is there been a destination, um, that you're wanting to go to that you haven't been to yet? Yeah. You know what? I've never been to Switzerland. Uh, never been to Switzerland. should have gone last year, but I pulled out of the tournament and um, I really just want to go to Switzerland so I can say I had Swiss chocolate in Switzerland. You know, it's like I, it, has, it has nothing to do with anything else. I don't really know much about Switzerland. I don't know much about the culture or about the scenery. I mean, obviously the Swiss Alps are there, but um, being in a chair, you know, mountains aren't really a big draw for me anymore. Um, but the chocolate, I feel like I, that would be kind of fun to experience in Switzerland. No, for sure. Is there a certain city that uh, you, you, you have your eyes on? Uh, well, that's a um, that's a tougher one. Probably, I mean, obviously Geneva and Zeros come to mind, but I think Basel would be kind of interesting. It's a bit smaller than the than Geneva. Um, I don't come from a really big city, so going to big cities isn't really what I'm usually after. But oftentimes, to see a lot of the uh, the newer age culture, you have to go to some of the bigger cities. So. Probably somewhere like Basel would be kind of cool. Definitely. And since I just uh, came off my uh, recovery time and I definitely gained a lot of weight and ate a <laughs> lot of donuts, uh, I will not lie there. Uh, what is your favorite dessert? Oh, you know what? I'm a uh, favorite dessert. I mean, growing up as a kid, I used to love baklava. Um, that stuff is just, I mean, way, way too good, way too dangerous. Um, anything with like a honey or a maple syrup base. So it was like sticky buns or baklava. Um, now that I'm, now that I'm a little bit, uh, you know, more refined in my palate, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what my, what my favorite dessert would be. I think honestly, still a really good homemade baklava, just not a store-bought one anymore though. Like I said, I've gotten too, uh, too cushy with my, with my experiences now that I like to have something a little more homemade, I guess. <laughs> it's okay. You're a little bougie. Right. <laughs> a little bu- a little bougie. Yeah, a little bougie for sure. <laughs> um, outside of your family, is there a person that you admire either in sport or outside? Ooh, you know, um, I mean, my entire family uh, inspires me quite a bit. They all they all sacrificed a lot after my injury to kind of kickstart my life again, and they all put all theirs on pause to allow mine to restart. But um, if I had to narrow it down to one person, um, no, I'd probably say my mom. I mean, I think it's a pretty cliche answer, but my dad worked extremely hard um, to support us and to uh, follow his career as a physician and um, provide for his five kids. But I think the sacrifices that my mom made um, to raise us, to not work like she wanted to, um, is pretty inspiring. It just shows how how much she did care for us, how much she still does care for us, that she was willing to put her own career goals and her own life goals on hold to allow her husband to achieve his and then to, you know, allow us as kids to have the most um, normal and healthy um, family uh, experience growing up. So definitely admire her quite a bit. Yes, no, absolutely. Yeah, I 100% get that. Um, What is your favorite hobby outside of playing tennis? Oh my gosh, favorite hobby. I mean, currently, current favorite hobby, got to be painting. Uh, but all-encompassing favorite hobby is sports statistics. Uh, I just love tracking sports of all kinds, um, running some really quick analyses on on the results of, of matches, of sporting events. And uh, that was something that for COVID, I mean, that was, that was kind of rough for me, rough for a lot of people. But, I mean, I'm a big sports fan. So not having any sports at all to follow was uh, – was really difficult. You know, I started getting into some really weird stuff, like watching um, marble Olympics on YouTube, right? I'm a, I'm a huge green ducks marble fan now and watch all their events. And here I am at my laptop watching, you know, a couple of mar- actual marbles go down a funnel and I'm cheering and I'm watching along. So obviously sports statistics has got to be a hobby if I'm 
going so deep as to watch Marvels in my spare time. <laughs> awesome, awesome. I love it. I love it. Uh, do you have a favorite quote? Favorite quote. Um, yeah, I mean, the one that I have tattooed on my chest is never give in, never give up triumph. Um, and that was a quote that my, you know, that my, uh, my parents and my siblings came up with me during my rehab. So something I definitely try to try to live by now is that sort of never give in, never give up attitude and fight for everything you want. And, um, yeah, I would say that's sort of, I wouldn't say it's my favorite quote, but it's definitely the quote that I live by now for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, you know, obviously other than our, uh, bed night bromance chats, um, what are three things that you would want on a tropic island if you were deserted for a month? Well, if I was deserted for a month on a tropical island, uh, I mean, number one would be uh, a month's worth of uh, 3.25% uh, homogenized milk. So I would need to have my milk supply there for a month. That's just a, I, no questions asked. It has to be there. Um, after that, I would probably say... I mean, I don't need any sporting equipment because I'm sure I could find like a coconut or something to play games with. So I would say definitely a month's worth of milk um, on an island day. Eh? I'd probably bring a book like the dictionary. I feel like it would be a good opportunity just to read a bunch of words and learn a whole bunch of new words to add to my vocabulary, which is quite small. Uh, <laughs> and then... Uh, I mean, got to have a nice pair of sunglasses if you're on an island to lounge out with, right? I mean, I know, I know I'm missing some pretty big staples like uh, health equipment and food, but I feel like I just, you know, figured that out when I was there. Oh, man, those are minor details. What are you talking about? <laughs> Super minor. Yeah, so I guess in, in summary, uh, a month's worth of milk, a dictionary, and a pair of sunglasses. I love it. I, I love it. This is kind of on the same note, but if you could teleport anywhere, where would you go and why? Back to Germany um, when my grandfather and grandmother, my Omi and Opa, were growing up. You know, that's a part of my culture that I've never um, really got to experience as much because my Opa passed away when I was quite young. And then, um, you know, my Omi, I, I, unfortunately, I think it was just too young to really inquire into um, her culture as much. So I've also learned a lot from my mom about Germany, but I would love to go. I mean, I would love to have seen what it was like uh, when he was growing up and just see the uh, the infrastructure, see the society that he grew up in and really see what gave Germany its uh, its culture, its roots, its heritage. Yeah, I, I love that. Germany has a very special place in my heart too. So um, I love that. Um, and I'm a foodie. I love food. Growing up in Phoenix, Arizona, I love authentic food. Um, do you have a favorite type of food that you like? Favorite type of food? Oh boy. I mean, seafood, huge seafood junkie. I mean, living in Kelowna is not great for that because I'm not quite on the coast, but um, love all, all, all kinds of seafood. Um, that's something that I don't think I've moved more towards a pescatarian diet in the last sort of year, year and a half. Um, I tried going vegetarian, but I just could not give up the seafood. Uh, so that's got to be my number one choice for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Love it. And obviously, you said that you love sport. Do you have one sport uh, that you like the most? I mean, obviously, going to be cliche. I do, I do love tennis. Love watching tennis. Uh, also, a big hockey fan, though. Grew up playing that. Obviously, as a Northern Ontario boy, and uh, unfortunately, I'm a diehard Leaf fan. So, uh, you know, I love, I love getting disappointed every year. It sort of builds a builds a thick outer coating of just being able to get over disappointment. Uh, um, but I mean, I'm a diehard Leaf fan. Wear the jersey during games with the hat on as well. So um, I would definitely be, uh, I'd be lying if I didn't say hockey. Yeah, man, we need to make like a deal where you and I need to go watch a Leafs game next time we're at the CBC thing. We need to make that like a part of our contract, even though that we don't sign a contract. Um, <laughs> I'd be like, come on, we got to get to a Leafs game. Maybe, maybe we should make it a contract. If we if we keep on trending the way we are, maybe we'll have some some clout to actually make some contracts, you know, make some, make some uh, stipulations and some demands next time we go there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wishful thinking, I think, but uh, very, very, very wishful. <laughs> of course, CPC highlighted, highlighted our romance. Uh, I've heard people ask if it's real. So I had to ask the man, the myth, the legend is our romance real. Oh, it's as real as it gets. 
I mean, I'm, I'm struggling over here looking at this guy's Instagram profile. He's got all these, all these photos and stories with him and, uh, him and another woman on there. And, uh, it's, it's devastating. You know, I want, I want all of Nate's attention to myself. Oh no. Bromance is real. I think we get along super well. I mean, we got, uh, uh, lots of light banter, lots of light, playful conversations, but then, then also some really deep, meaningful ones. So someone who obviously, I mean, I click with you right away and, um, I'm a pretty introverted guy. So that means a lot. So, you know, yeah, no, absolutely. I made it very clear to Ray. I'll be like, listen, Rob's my guy. Um, <laughs> don't try to get in the way. No. Um, but, yeah, as long as she knows, you know, as long as she knows. Of course, of course. Come on. <laughs> um, all right. I have two final questions. I ask every guest first, where can people find you on the socials? What are your handles? Yeah, definitely find me on the Instagram at Rob Shaw Tennis. That's where I seem to be the most active right now. Lots of painting stories, lots of outdoor exploring stories. Once I'm back on court, I'll start doing some more tennis stuff as well. But something I'm going to try doing definitely more um, this year is just to try to keep a bit more of an active profile on Instagram. So Rob Shaw Tennis for sure. Facebook, I'm not very active. So I would say uh, Instagram is where you're, is where you're going to find me. Awesome. And uh, lastly, what do you want your impact to be on the world? And this can be uh, all in- encompassing or just just sport. So what, what, whatever way you, you want to take it. Oh, boy. I mean, truthfully, I mean, I don't, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to be remembered. And that might sound, that might sound weird, but I want my contribution to the world to be, um, meaningful but in a way that isn't um isn't so large that it becomes you know who i'm known for what i do right i mean um to give you an example i mean i would love to continue playing parasport continue playing wheelchair tennis and um if that means winning more titles and and winning majors or becoming the you know x player to do y that's great and all but um you know if i can just continue to build a um a good environment for future wheelchair tennis players in Canada to pick up the torch and follow with, then I don't mind if my flame gets extinguished, you know, that's not a, that's not a concern with mine or with me. Um, and same for my work. I mean, I want to contribute to society. I want to help people out and I want to make a difference in people's lives. But I think the, um, you know, the way society moves forward, right. Is the majority of people who are doing amazing things out there, we don't know who they are. Um, but they're doing them anyways. And that's sort of how I foresee my future going as someone who hopefully continue, continues to contribute in a positive way. But, um, you know, 50, 20, 100 years from now, you know, hopefully my name is uh, just with the dust. <laughs> <laughs>